Over time, empirical research, ethical analyses, and stakeholder engagement have informed expectations about how healthcare professionals and organizations should respond to adverse events, including those caused by medical errors. But addressing a medical error can still be daunting. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Thomas Gallagher, a professor in the Department of Medicine and the Department of Bioethics and Humanities at the University of Washington. Dr. Gallagher has co-authored a perspective article about responding to medical errors as part of the journal series on the fundamentals of medical ethics. Dr. Gallagher, you write in your perspective article that traditionally recommendations regarding medical errors focused mostly on whether to disclose those mistakes to patients. So how were those decisions made and what ethical and other considerations did they depend on? You're right. Early in the field, the primary focus was on the issue of, well, when something's gone wrong, what should we say to the patient? Should we tell them what happened? Is it okay to apologize? There was some ethical analysis that was done at that time, probably 20 or 30 years ago, emphasizing that physicians and other healthcare professionals have an obligation to be open when something went wrong and that failing to tell patients about harmful error in their care would be a breach of professional ethics. Unfortunately, those high-level recommendations for openness were typically drowned out by advice from risk managers and attorneys who really cautioned about telling patients about mistakes lest a lawsuit ensue. And physicians were really caught between those compelling sort of polls, an ethical obligation to be open, but advice from risk and legal folks that being open could lead to a lawsuit. And the net outcome was often that physicians said little, if anything, to patients and families about errors, which we've learned over time just makes the situation much, much worse. When did approaches to responding to medical errors begin to shift and what were the precipitating factors? Well, there were several factors that led to a change roughly around the time of the Institute of Medicine's report to Air is Human, which came out in late 1999 or early 2000. More and more of an emphasis in healthcare was on the importance of transparency generally. People recognized that you really couldn't fix problems in healthcare that you weren't aware of. And so more and more, there was an emphasis on creating cultures that made it feel safer for healthcare workers to come forward and talk with the organization and by extension, talk with patients and families when something had gone wrong. This coincided with a growing consumerist movement and emphasis on the importance of sharing information about healthcare generally with patients and families so that they could make more informed choices about their healthcare. And that certainly extended to the notion of being more open when something had gone wrong in their care. And that consumerist movement also demanded more information, including information about things that had not gone well in their care. So all of those forces together really propelled the field towards thinking more clearly about what we mean by transparency and healthcare. And then there were pioneering organizations like the University of Michigan and the Lexington, Kentucky VA that took that concept one step further and thought, well, 
not only should we be open with patients and families when there are errors, but if they were harmed by those errors, we should make a proactive offer of financial compensation rather than waiting for the patient and family to file a lawsuit. That was known as disclosure and offer programs, and those were really the forerunners of what are now known as communication and resolution programs, comprehensive and principled and systematic initiatives at healthcare organizations and at some liability insurers to try to detect harm events in medicine as quickly as possible, and then to report the event immediately, to have open, ongoing communication with the patient and family about what happened, to make sure we're using the best practices to analyze the event and find the system factors that caused it, to support the healthcare workers who were involved in what happened, to, in cases where the harm was due to error, make a proactive offer of financial or non-financial resolution, and then to make sure that patients and families are involved throughout the entire response to harm events. You would imagine that this area of healthcare, how do we respond when something's not gone well, would be the most patient-centered part of healthcare. I would argue that, in fact, it currently is the least. And it's not that healthcare professionals and organizations consciously disregard the needs of patients and families. It's just that when something goes wrong, clinicians, the organization are just so focused on what does this event mean for me, the doctor, me, the nurse, for us, the organization, that unfortunately the needs of the patient and the family oftentimes recede into the background. So you've laid out some of the biggest barriers to the consistent use of these communication and resolution programs. How do you think those challenges might be overcome? Well, I think there are things that can be done both at the local organizational level as well as at the level of federal and state health policy. At the level of the local healthcare organization, we have been very pleased now that hundreds of organizations are in some state of trying to implement a communication and resolution program. Much of that is thanks to the work that the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality supported over the last two decades, which ultimately led to the development of what's known as the CANDOR Toolkit, CANDOR as an acronym standing for Communication and Optimal Resolution. The CANDOR Toolkit was very important to the field because there were lots of organizations that wanted to move in this direction, but they didn't know how. And the CANDOR Toolkit was really the first resource that gave organizations a roadmap to turn some of these principles of transparency into practice. Unfortunately, as you mentioned, even though there is incredible uptake, the real challenge that the field is struggling with is one of inconsistent implementation. And we, through the organization here at UW Medicine that I help lead the Collaborative for Accountability and Improvement, in partnership with colleagues at Ariadne Labs in Boston and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, have developed a learning community for organizations that are interested in communication and resolution program that's called PACT, the Pathway to Accountability, Compassion, and Transparency. And it provides many of the tools and resources that can help organizations even go beyond the Candor Toolkit, but also emphasizes the importance of starting to measure the communication and resolution program process. 
It really is interesting, Stephen, that for every other area of quality and safety, there's an understanding that to improve, we need to be able to measure what the current state is, and that will point us towards the opportunities for improvement. Currently, very few organizations use any sort of measures around their CRP process. They don't even know of all of the events that should have gone through our CRP, what proportion actually did. And of those that went through the CRP process, were each of the steps followed the way they should? And what have been the outcomes of our CRP? So our group, along with others, have developed and validated a set of measures that any organization can use to try to understand, well, what is our current state at our organization and how can we use measures in real time to look for our strengths and reinforce them and then look for the areas where we're struggling and try to make improvements in them. We're learning a lot at the institutional level about the critical role that board and C-suite involvement play in effective implementation of CRP just as board and C-suite engagement is critical to effective implementation of any quality or safety initiative. But it's tricky because just as I mentioned at the outset, there are competing voices in the field, voices calling for openness and transparency, but also voices calling for caution and fearing lawsuits. Clinical leaders, C-suite board members, still hear from attorneys notes of caution and a concern that being more open may lead to increased litigation. That's why it's so important that we recognize that CRPs are a modern ethical paradigm for responding to harm events. And in that ethical paradigm, it holds healthcare organizations accountable for making choices making choices that reduce and certainly don't exacerbate the suffering that patients and families experience following a harm event or that healthcare workers experience following a harm event. Because if we've learned anything in this field, it's awful enough when patients are harmed by their healthcare, but when the response to that harm is inadequate, when it lacks accountability, compassion, and transparency, it makes the suffering of patients and families and the suffering of clinicians so much worse. And oftentimes that suffering is sort of out of sight of healthcare organizations. So in addition to using the tools and measures that I mentioned, boards and C-suites play an incredibly important role in prioritizing this work and then making sure that the response to harm is understood as an extension of the clinical mission that has legal implications, not thought of as a legal response that happens to take place in the clinical setting. So those are some of the things that healthcare organizations can do. State and federal policymakers play a very important role in the field as well. We're seeing many states start to adopt legislation that is meant to encourage communication and resolution programs. That's a nice step in the right direction. And then we've been particularly pleased because at the federal policy level, more and more entities like the White House President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, also known as PCAST, they recently issued a report on transforming patient safety and 
one of the primary recommendations of that report was to embrace transparency and accountability. And they specifically called out communication and resolution programs, which is great. And then the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services recently published a draft structural measure on patient safety. And I was very pleased to see that that structural measure had several elements calling for the implementation of highly reliable communication and resolution programs. So those are some of the things that state and federal policymakers, that healthcare organizations can do. And individual clinicians need to familiarize themselves with this important area and be sure they know in their environment, whether they work at a big academic medical center or for a multi-hospital health system or are in a smaller practice environment. My father was a primary care geriatrician in a two-physician practice in Southern California. My grandfather was a solo practice pediatrician in downtown Los Angeles. I oftentimes think about my dad and grandfather and want to make sure that all of the resources that are available to help clinicians in organizations respond to harm, we need to think about how can clinicians in other care environments also receive that type of support. So Clinicians really need to be aware of what's available to them in their local environment and think a little bit about, well, if something goes wrong, am I prepared to respond effectively? So finally, what do you think the future is going to look like for communication and resolution programs? How are organizations going to evolve in their responses to harmful errors? I think the future in this space is extremely bright. I'm very heartened by the increasing attention that we're seeing in the field to the importance of communication and resolution programs. But the inconsistent implementation that the field continues to struggle with is a real warning sign that to fulfill the ethical mandate to respond to harm events in the most appropriate way, healthcare organizations and all of the stakeholders that support them, whether they are in risk, claims, patient relations, attorneys, regulators are going to need to double down on ensuring that organizations have adopted a highly reliable communication and resolution program, and then start to actually demonstrate using measures that they're using this approach consistently. One of the real criticisms of this work from patient advocates, from some plaintiff attorneys has been, well, isn't this really the fox guarding the hen house? If we're leaving this up to healthcare organizations, to liability insurers, to defense attorneys, what assurances do we have that these programs are operating as intended? What assurances do we have that patients and families are being treated fairly in these programs? And this is where it's going to be so important that organizations begin to use metrics initially to guide their own internal improvement. I would love to see, though, over time, accreditation organizations, whether it's the Joint Commission or organizations like CMS, begin to require not only that organizations have a highly reliable communication and resolution program in place, but then ask them to demonstrate that and to start to make some of the metrics at a high level publicly available. And I think that would be a big step forward in terms of reassuring critics that these programs are indeed intended to meet the needs of patients and families first and foremost, 
And then I think over time, those measures, just as uh, large-scale improvement initiatives in various clinical fields have relied heavily on things like registries, the more we can start to, as a community, collect case-level data about CRP cases, and likely under the auspices of a patient safety organization or PSO, we can then start to uncover, well, what are the situations where CRPs look like they're doing well? What are the situations where these appear to be struggling? What are the features of the case, the patient, the family, the organization, the doctor, the external environment that seem to be associated with more positive or less positive outcomes in the CRP space. I think that type of granular work will really be helpful to guide the field in reaching its potential. We're heading in the right direction, but in many respects, the field is at the end of the beginning, and there's much more to do to make sure that we can live up to our ethical obligation to not only provide the highest quality care possible to patients and families, but when harm happens, to make sure we're responding to the patient and family with all of the principles of a communication and resolution program so that we're reducing to the greatest extent possible their ongoing suffering after that harm event. Thank you, Dr. Gallagher.